90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Ah, doing pretty well. Um, enjoying the peace and quiet around the office, that's for sure. Oh, yes, things uh, calm down a little bit. The calm before the storm of teaching a new round of classes. Oh, exactly. And this one really is a new class, so I'm still obviously developing it because I don't, I, I don't work best under pressure, but I'm definitely a procrastinator. So that's what I'm doing, uh, getting ready to go out into the field too, so that's exciting. But um, this new class, I'm pretty excited about it. And since every time I have to come up with something to teach, we usually wind up talking about it on the show, so... <laughs> Since it's that makes true. Me, yeah, it makes me get my gets my notes together. But uh, we've been doing a lot of that, and um, it's been really fun because we've actually had a lot of students come through, and I mean students, not college students, but uh, little kids come through over the break because, of course, they're in school. Ha ha ha! And uh, we've had we've had a lot of outreach going on around the office, and um, that's pretty fun. I know that's something that we both are really, you know, near and dear to our hearts. So it's cool to see that happening around here. Oh, yeah, definitely. So are you taking them into the PMAG lab and terrifying them with the, uh, <laughs> the alternating field demagnetizer? <laughs> the one with the big high voltage sticker on it. Um, I only do that to the high school kids. Uh, we've been using the stream table quite <laughs> a lot lately. Yeah, just the just the pure for fun plane. Oh, yeah. Okay. So is the stream table, is that the same as the flume that you all had? Or is this a different? No, drink? no, we went, we went upscale. We bought one of those EM River fancy stream tables with the, you know, mixed density media. And it's got all kinds of different uh, bells and whistles where you can make every river system to your heart's delight. We even have little houses and little plants that can, you know, stabilize the banks of the rivers and stuff. It's super great. Leather interior. <laughs> and uh, Bluetooth connectivity, yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty um, awesome. And, you know, it's appropriate because we just came out of a lot of our conference seasons. I'm getting ready to do another conference uh, where we do a lot of these outreach activities. And we're pretty excited to have some guests on today to talk about outreach. So we're excited to talk to Ryan Vachon and Dan Zitlo. Hello. Hey, good segue. <laughs> and it was well, we true. do our best. Yeah, it was true, too. It was not <laughs> contrived at all. <laughs> so, guys, before the show, you were telling me about the pronunciations of your last names. And uh, did we do justice there? <laughs> well, this is Ryan coming in. And so sometimes you have to you know, practice this French. This is, I'm American. <laughs> I'm from Boston. But if you're going to pronounce Vachon, it's Vachon. And uh, we were talking about this. Shannon actually brought this up earlier where it's <laughs> Vachon. <laughs> <laughs> so we take a field trip, Ryan, to the Grand Tetons, and that's how we make everyone pronounce it. Grand Teton. <laughs> the entire week. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Onwards! Yes. Welcome so to guys, the show. Could you tell us? Thank you. <laughs> So, guys, could you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? Dan? You want me to go first? Uh, well, I'm all over the board. I think we're both kind of all over the board. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, my background 
was first in optical physics, and then I transitioned to seismology for my PhD, and now I do outreach through film and work with Ryan. I mean, and that's is- optical. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's all it's all waves, right? Exactly. It's, it just depends on the frequency. There you go. <laughs> and uh, I'm this is Ryan. Uh, I guess I started off getting out of college where I, I studied engineering and then I went on to geosciences, but then I taught high school for a little bit, went to grad school for stable isotope geochemistry. So paleo for me is like looking back over the past hundred thousand years at ice cores. Um, so I went from there and uh, I started filming while I was on my scientific expeditions. And from there, some people liked what I was filming and it got produced. And I all of a sudden thought I was a good videographer, but in truth, the science was the cool part, and I was the only one with a camera on site, so I thought I was better than I was, and so I went into outreach and then had to learn the ropes. And now I'm uh, mostly doing outreach through through film and, and also speaking. All right, so uh, we'll get to the outreach bit here in a little bit, obviously, since that's uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to chat with you all, but I'm curious, what drew you to geosciences? a good question so for me so for me you know i went through my undergrad i was doing physics like i said i was doing optical physics i spent a lot of time in a lab with no windows which was kind of a bummer um but it was cool because i loved physics and i got to work with lasers and understand how you know musical uh instruments vibrated uh but i think for me i just slowly came to the realization that I could do physics outside. <laughs> so then when I was looking for grad, graduate programs, uh, I was just looking for programs. That, okay, you know, how can I take my optical physics training and apply it to something that I get to spend at least some time outside more often than not, which is kind of ironic because then as a geophysicist, you spend most of your time in front of a computer. But uh-huh. <laughs> you can at least like get out into the field and deploy instruments and uh, really warm your way onto other people's projects, field geologist projects to get yourself outside. So I don't know. That's how I found my way. I just realized I could do science outside and I was pretty stoked about it. That's, that's kind of a nice story. I had to make up for my story of what I do because it paled compared to yours. Oh, see, well done. Um, I was forced into learning it as a child and I've stayed with it. Ever- no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I think mine started off as I was a civil engineering undergrad and uh, I took a semester off from school and a buddy of mine and I traveled around in a $700 car around the United States to the national parks and we were sleeping under park benches and we had this old A-frame tent and we were camping and we were going to these national parks and I remember going up the Bright Angel Trail in Zion looking at all the beds, uh, the rock beds and saying, what the heck? And then I was able to learn what it was, and it even blew my mind further. So amazing views, and then the history that I could see. I could look into the past. Um, I came back from my trip and changed my major um, to geosciences. I love it when that happens. I feel like that happens a whole lot, and it just goes to show the importance of good outreach you know, whether it's in high school or in your intro geology class to get people really excited. Fully agree. And I think that that's a little bit why Dan and I are in the field that we're in, where, at least for me, and I'm going to only speak for myself, but I know what helped transform my life and um, brought meaning to my life in new ways. And one of it was to understand the world around us. Um, 
And if I can add a little bit of that to other people's lives, and if they're anything like me, well, they shouldn't be like me, but if they are, <laughs> you know, they, they might be inspired as well. And uh, maybe that's a little bit of what I could offer the world. That's great. I love it when even grudgingly this happens too, because we've uh, done some projects with uh, another podcast called the orbital mechanics and i know ben mm-hmm. one of the co-hosts out there he's always like oh now i know what all these rocks outside my window mean because of you guys thanks <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> exactly <laughs> well i mean wasn't it uh oh uh, john mcphee that said you can't be a good geologist and driver yeah <laughs> <laughs> So true. I've almost died on so many road trips. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's very accurate. The, the few <laughs> field courses I have taken, I was very impressed by my professor's ability to drive and talk at the same time. On, on a, <laughs> to on drive a radio. looking at the road. Yeah. On a radio. Well, there was a few moments where you're just like on these narrow roads with no guardrails and you're like, oh my God, please shut up and watch the road. <laughs> yeah. How many good road trips came to an end with, oh, look, it's a zealot. <laughs> Uh, so i mean there are a lot of career paths in geoscience when you get out of grad school you can go the the postdoc route and go down the academic route you can go into industry so who who pays the bills Where, where where are your day jobs actually at and how did you find those positions dan are there day jobs in science filmmaking? <laughs> yeah, they bleed over into night. Yeah. All right. Um, I would say with this type of career path, you're definitely making your own jobs a lot of the time. Um, so for me, I my day job is actually with UNAVCO, which is a facility funded by the National Science Foundation. So basically we do all things geodesy. Um and for our definition, geodesy is basically the study of Earth's shape, its size, uh, its rotation, its gravity field, and how all those things can change over time. Uh, so really, you can just think of GPS, right? So GPS tells us where we are in the world. Um, so I work in their education and outreach department, and that's kind of my day job. And I do um, a lot of outreach on the side of that. And then, you know, when you don't have gigs coming in, I've worked in retail. I have picked up random uh translation jobs i've done a bunch of stuff for a production company like translating religious sermons so that's interesting um yeah so i would say it's really a matter of being super creative as to how you can get your income here i'm sure ryan has a similar experience yeah right now i'm working at the institute of arctic and alpine research at the university of colorado uh, for some of my work and uh, there's a group called the consortium for capacity building and which sounds really yeah ccb um what we're doing is looking into how third world countries can better prepare for natural hazards associated with climate change and el nino but then on the other side, I, I teach, and then I also have some contract jobs. Like I'm working on a health show for Apple TV. Uh, so yeah, you you make ends meet, uh, and it's not always simple. Right, definitely. I feel like outreach is one of those things where you, you've got to have the passion to pursue it and make make your own path because there's not a lot of openings until. You make them. You show people that outreach is an important component of their research. Uh, so, 
I guess I'm curious, what are some of the methods of outreach that you've played with? You've already mentioned video, and I know that's one of the main ones, but uh, what about you know going and doing demos or uh, participating on podcasts, that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we, it is a path. I, I think that my, my outreach started with video, and, and it's still mainly focused on video. Um, however, I do really feel like it's important to teach. And I teach uh, at the University of Colorado, but also I really have enjoyed going around to middle schools and high schools and talking about um, the importance of understanding our world around us. And so that might be motivational speaking, but around science. Um, and then I guess I, I started a podcast called The Nerd Herd, um, and that's H-E-A-R-D. But, you know, it, it's hard to cover too many bases, and I let that one sink into the mist about six months ago, and I've thought of reviving it, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and for my outreach, it probably also started uh, not with formal teaching, but as an undergrad. There were a few... Um, underprivileged schools near where I went to undergrad that we would go into and set up some tables and have fun with the kids about, I don't know, like smoke rings and stuff like that, talking about just general physics. So that's kind of where my outreach started and then kind of segued into film. Um, more recently, I would say, about three or four years ago, uh, mostly because I just think films are really, I mean, for me personally, a really interesting medium, but I, I also think it's a very versatile medium and you can reach a lot of people through film. And then through my work with UNAVCO, we've done a lot of really cool outreach events as well. So uh, you, you were talking about this a few weeks ago. I was really stoked. Y'all had given us a shout out about the, the work we did at actually the Boulder Farmer's Market, which was such a cool experience. We literally just set up a table at the Farmer's Market with a couple demos um, we had taken this year. We took out um, a tsunami early warning demo that we have. We have we also took out a demo showing the relationship between earthquakes and groundwater, as well as a demo um, about glacial isostasy. So if a glacier melts somewhere, the land below it will actually kind of pop back up to where it was. So we were literally just out there with like goo and tubs of water, and people were walking by wanting to buy vegetables, and they instead came to us and bought knowledge. So that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like with outreach, you kind of, you know, there are your more traditional routes with teaching and going in the classrooms. But then I also think it's it's fun to explore things that you wouldn't think of, like going to the farmer's market with a tub of water to, to showcase how we can do early warning systems to save people. I would say that one of the coolest ways that Dan and I are collaborating together is on a, a project where the, the pay is not very good. But I, I would say that um, we're also working on a film that we're trying to get into onto PBS, a half-hour uh, kids' learning show about science, uh, where we just came back this autumn from filming on the northern slope near the Brooks Range. Uh, in Alaska. In Alaska. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, looking at how vegetation patterns might be changing due to changing climate. And then what are the knock-on effects of maybe changing patterns of vegetation to migratory patterns of caribou? Um, and we're trying to, how do we say this, communicate the science that goes into great depth with mass spectrometers and whatever to fifth graders. And so it is an interpretation task, but cool. <laughs> so how does your background being a high school teacher help you with that? Because I feel like a lot of times when we bring students in and 
somebody gets, I mean, somebody that's not really passionate gets sucked into doing a presentation. It seems like they always kind of miss their <laughs> mark sometimes. And it's just, it's so painful to watch, right? But I know I've had high schoolers in my paleo mag lab who are just <clears throat> unbelievably intelligent like they i'm like here's this thing the earth has a magnetic field and they're like yeah 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 so when it flipped back in the permian i'm like oh okay so you know your stuff <laughs> like <laughs> so how has that prepared you for these different audiences because i feel like that's where some outreach kind of misses the mark that's a really good question i think that this is ryan but i'm my experience with childhood was that I became excited about science um, mostly through observation. And so I try to think back to where I was at my points of understanding of science at a certain age. So if I was in middle school, what did I need to know? What did I need to engage me? And a lot of times it was, let's say, hands-on or, or visual. And can I then maybe not give the exact same experience because maybe we're talking about a different subject, but at least that's a model for how much information can I say versus show and how much do I have to repeat? And then when do you add in some sort of energetic interlude or a question? And I think that kind of pacing for me is defined by my past experiences and projecting that onto the people around me. But that doesn't always work <laughs> because you're bringing up really, really intelligent people. <laughs> and maybe I'm a little slower. I also don't think I knew the magnetic field flipped in the Permian when I was in middle school and high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was, uh, that's actually what my grad student and I were talking about today because it didn't flip much in the Permian, and that's just what the first thing that came to mind. But I do remember getting sidetracked because I was really at this basic level, and these kids were getting bored, and I'm like, oh, God, they don't even understand what I'm saying. And this kid just whipped out this question about, like, magnetic minerals. I was like, oh, no, you're bored because I'm teaching down here at this third grade level, and you are higher than most of my grad students, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that cool, though? Like, it was, can, I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, like when you start to see somebody who kind of gets things that you wouldn't expect, their lights are switched on. I don't know. I guess that switches my lights on, and I get really excited to continue sharing and see what they don't know or what they oh, where they want to go. That's great. That's exactly what I did. I said, come into this next room over here. And so, like, I took him into, like, the room beside our lab. And, like, we talked all about, you know, the the magnetic field migration and all this stuff. It was spectacular. That is exactly what I did. But I've never thought about it, like, pushing them until I teach them something new. But I guess that's exactly what I was trying to do. Well, and when we had some students come through our lab, it, it, was, it was always interesting because a lot of the 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 more traditional academics I feel like have the attitude of oh I have to do this outreach thing mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of times they would ask a question and you're like oh that's a really good question we actually don't know the answer to that and I'm going to go write an, an NSF proposal now <laughs> <laughs> damn uh, I'll put you in the acknowledgments kid thanks <laughs> yeah totally yeah, so, I mean uh, it feels like a lot of the questions that get asked are you know either they're above the level that you expected or they're just really good and they kind of show that well science doesn't know everything so when you're doing your outreach how do you try to balance appearing like okay we we are experts on this we are scientists these are the things we know and projecting that confidently 
at the same time saying, and here's the limit of what we know, and we just don't yet have a way of understanding the system beyond that. Dan? That's a really complex question, I would say. <laughs> um, I, th I think that part of science is about what we don't know, and I almost feel like the premise of a lot of my conversations that I have is starting with what we don't know mm. um, and filling in and saying, we know this so far, and it prompts these questions. Um, so I almost think of it in a reverse direction where you could start to say, like, check out these crazy questions that could lead us to be curious. And then what do we know? And then I think, yeah, the, the honest answer for what I don't know, um, and I, I don't know if this is where you were leading, but if, if I don't know something, I'd love to try to get back to them and, and openly admit it because I think they like to see the human behind somebody who kind of knows more than them if they're maybe a little like third graders. So I think that I'm, I do that as well. Like I start with, well, we don't know that. And I think I sort of walk this line of maybe saying that too much to the point where my students are like, do you people know anything at all? <laughs> <laughs> and then like, I just lose them. Cause they're like, you know, you're just making the rest of this crap up. Cause you just told us you didn't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that's, a, that's a dangerous one for me because I think it's exciting that we don't know. Whereas other people who don't have that sort of bent might be like, oh, well, then why do I care? Basically, you're just lying to me now. <laughs> I think it's that balance, right? And Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I have a solution to that balance at all until you just start feeling out the crowd and having experience with the, the information that you're sharing. True. True. But, I mean, you're teaching. By the way, you never told us what class you're teaching. Oh, well, I teach a lot of stuff. Um, I teach, I, my favorite class to teach, sorry, geology kids, um, is this native, it's called native science, and it's an intro-level science course at the university. It's mostly freshmen and sophomores that take it, and it has a lab, so they get their science with a lab credit, which is a university-wide requirement. Uh, so I generally get students that are super scared of science. Mm -hmm. super scared it's like they don't want to take it they're terrified so something like intro biology or intro geology is too scary for them so they take my class which <laughs> is yeah so it's a mix of um intro geology and meteorology with indigenous stories thrown in to sort of say look you know in western science today it's that whole you know you ask kids to draw a scientist and they draw an old white guy in a lab coat, right? But, you right. know, indigenous people did science too. Like, some of my favorite stories are talking about the Teano people from the Caribbean and how, you know, they actually could forecast hurricanes. They didn't have satellites, <laughs> you know? And so, how did they do it? Like that. Oh, really like, do you cool. know? <laughs> <laughs> they have these little simmies, so these little god-looking faces that had mm -hmm. that they would carve. And for their eyes, they would have really prominent cheekbones. And you're like, okay, well, that's just how they carve it. But they would hang those in caves on certain parts of the island. And so, you know, barometric pressure and humidity would affect how these simmies hung. And then also, as the humidity changed, tears tears because it's on their cheekbones would collect 
in these little, you know, shelves that they'd made that were look like their cheekbones, but they're little shelves. And so they could check them and see that, you know, the humidity was changing and see where it was hanging and start to see that there was pressure changes along with these humidity changes and that maybe their got their hurricane goddess was named Guabanse was coming to get them. That is so, so red. Cool. That's so red. <laughs> I love it. It's so exciting. I have I have thousands of stories. John John's probably like, oh no, oh you got her started. <laughs> <laughs> no, I eat your heart out. <laughs> no, it's actually because I saw you give that talk at GSA in Seattle this year. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember just sitting there thinking like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, why don't <laughs> why can't we combine culture and science more often? I know exactly because so many people, and I mean this this goes with the outreach show, John. This is not just me getting on a rant about nature. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but I feel like you know so many people are afraid of science because they don't see themselves as a mathematician or someone that could work in a lab. Like they don't see themselves like that. But you know, most indigenous cultures didn't sit down and have science class. It was just ingrained in how they view the world, and so we've kind of done everyone a disservice by. You know, saying, you know, science is this class that you have to go to in the lab, and this is the stuff that happens when, in fact, the scientific method happens every day when you say, what's the weather outside and what am I going to wear? Because, you know, you can't wear shorts when it's 30 degrees because you've already performed that experiment, you know. Right. So. And speaking so of kind of experiment, like how they determined that a hurricane was coming, like they had to be so open to observation. And they're so, they must have been so curious because, wow, okay, we see humidity uh, rising condensation, and then really linking that to what happens the, over the next 48 hours. Exactly. Uh, that, and so that's, that's so observation cool. is the key. And so one of the one of the last lectures we do is sort of, um, it's tying in meteorology because this is the easiest thing to do it. Because lots of people, lay people understand, how do we observe meteorology? You know, so we've got satellites and we've got thermometers and everything like that. And so it's just a different method of observation. It's the same exact thing. You know, and so here in Oklahoma, there were the Kiowa people who Mm -hmm. were Upper Plains migratory people, and they have this great story about tornadoes, and it's this horse god called Moncayi. And Moncayi is, he's a horse on the front half, and he's a mermaid on the back half. So he's got, like, this fish tail, Hmm. and his tail is the actual tornado, and when he runs, that's the thunder, and when he clacks his teeth, lightning comes out. And it's super green, right? And so, okay, that's this cool horse, but how does that actually shape up to a drawing of a thunderstorm? And it actually does, right? It has all the components of a supercell drawing that you would see in a textbook. It's just a different method of observation in different languages. And so tying that together, like, really gets me jazzed up. Like, that's... That's a really exciting thing to do. And people are like, oh, well, I can re- I can remember Mon Kai and everything about him. Well, then you know the structure of a supercell. It's the same thing. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> do you need a job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so a lot of Shannon's inspiration comes from this Native American science class and that melding of culture and science. So where does the inspiration for your videos come from? Oof. For for me, this is Ryan. I, I think it comes in. Uh, it comes from conversations with scientists and other curious people, including kids. But um, right now, I'm I'm working on a, a film about resilience in uh, third world countries, and I'm talking to scientists about how the heck do we improve 
country's readiness. And it's like, well, it has a lot to do with human resilience um, and understanding their options. And so, man, this is just a great story. And you see the excitement in the scientists and boom, like you could start to bring together really potent stories. Yeah, for some of the stuff that I'm working on with you, NAVCO, right now, um, we're really trying to reach out to those people that don't feel like they can do science, kind of like what you were saying earlier, Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just this morning and yesterday, actually, I've been editing a couple films together that are really short interviews with some students that we've had come through UNAVCO as interns and really just talking to them about their their kind of path from high school into college. Because um, I remember over the summer, there was we had these really cool geoscience uh, career spotlight videos that UNAVCO produces that kind of highlights different careers that you can take in the geosciences outside of academia. And I kind of took a step back and said, you know, hey, I look at where I went to high school and the problem wasn't getting kids into geoscience in college. The problem was getting kids to graduate high school and into college, you know. Um, So I proposed these, all right, let's go interview some geoscience students in college um, to really reach a demographic that I think uh, geoscience is missing, you know, because that's another kind of goal of, I think, both myself and Ryan is, you know, yeah, okay, we're two white dudes, but we can be allies for diversity within this field. And we really want to promote diversity within this field. Um, That's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I think another... Another project that Dan and I are collaborating on um, reminds me a lot of what you two do on Fridays, reading papers. Um, Dan and I are working on a series for YouTube, a video series uh, called Breaking Science. Um, you can find it, what is it, Breaking Sci at, on, on YouTube. But anyways, what we do is we read a science article and that kind of spawns questions in our head about okay, what are the physics behind hurricanes? Or what, what, what's the policy? What are, what are the ramifications of this policy going through? Or what have you? But a lot of times it's the reading of scientific journals or publications that um, get us going. And then our minds start going with what we would, what would, we would say next. And with those two, we're really just encouraging people to get out and ask the question why. Because that's all we really do with scientists, right? You had said that earlier is... Okay, well, why is this happening? How can we figure this out? Um, so with the, the, the Breaking Science videos, we really just want people to be able to sit down and kind of digest scientific information that isn't full of like scientific jargon or presented in a way that seems really off-putting, you know, because literally science is walking out your door and saying, why does this work? And trying to find the answer. And that's what we want. Ryan's shaking his head. Oh, no, I'm not shaking my head. No, it's shaking it up and down. Sorry. A nodding. <laughs> nodding. But no, it's supposed to be fun. And can't we bring out that curiosity that draws all of us that are in science to the science? John, I realize the problem that we just asked two filmmakers to come on a podcast. You know what I mean? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Huh? We, we didn't think this through, I think. <laughs> You didn't see me shaking my fist in the air. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I could hear it in the ter- tremble of your voice. <laughs> exactly. All, all so, creative mediums. <laughs> Media, I guess. <laughs> okay, sorry, now I want you to take them. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, oh, no, no. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, now this is where I want you to close your eyes and envision what we're doing next. <laughs> Go with it. Just well, you know, a couple weeks ago we were talking about waves and we said, well, if you imagine if you had a piece of paper and you were <laughs> – because it's, it's a hard concept to explain. 
over uh, just audio. Not, um, not as hard as those oh, those uh, transform faults at Mid Ocean Ridges. That was the <laughs> hardest podcast. <laughs> like that was really hard. <laughs> like I think I still so, have nightmares about that one. <laughs> I, I think we ended up just linking a yes <laughs> a picture in the show notes. Uh, Nice. But I, I'm curious because sometimes when we reach out to people and say we'd like to talk to you about your work, they're excited too, but at the same time pretty nervous to talk about it. And this is just on an audio podcast. Nobody can see you. We we go back and, you know, if you stumble over words, we can edit that and that kind of thing. How do you find that process going when you set down a tripod in front of somebody and they see the little blinking red light? Uh, you mean the person on camera being interviewed? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, it's it can sometimes take. I don't want to say coaxing. That's a weird word. Warming up. Warming up. Yeah. I mean, getting a, a drunk. Good... Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. I mean, we are geologists. But... Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I would say for me, when I uh, first start an interview, I usually give them a call a few weeks ahead of time and just kind of chat over the phone or chat over Skype because um, uh, you really want to get kind of a personal relationship going with them, even if it's not overly deep, you know, um, and just kind of gauge how comfortable they are talking. And then when you get them in front of the camera and if you can tell they're kind of starting to clam up, a really good thing is just kind of like shut off the camera. And it's like, all right, hey, let's just talk for a little bit. To get them used to the idea that there is a camera there, but it's not recording, so that's okay. Um, and then, you know, just kind of push record and have them focus on you. It's just like, okay, hey, like, ignore the camera. Let's just have a conversation between the two of us. Um, do you have any other ways to calm people, Ryan? I, I just tell them, just get better. No. <laughs> <laughs> Always Do the best time. of somebody better. No, I think Dan's <laughs> spot on. And I, I just like ditto that fully. Um, it is challenging though. Oh, I was saying, have you tried the uh, the black electrical tape over the blinking red light method? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that Dan was on to something though where if you can tell them, all right, we're not going to film right now, but the camera is going to be over my shoulder and it's going to be pointed at you. And you don't tell them that. But meanwhile, you do point the camera at them. But you don't press go or record. And then you just talk to them. And then you just reach over and hit record. It really works well. And, you know, before we had this podcast, we had a great conversation, the four of us. And it was nice. And it kind of warmed us up into it. And uh, we were speaking into the microphone. But all you did was press record uh, to change us over to the, po- the podcast. And that worked great. I mean, parallel you guys were outreach experts. We were hoping we wouldn't have to warm you up, but we have. <laughs> <laughs> we did laps around the house, warming yeah, up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know there's going to be a few people out there that are gear people because we definitely get questions into the show, wanting to know what microphones do we use, what software do we use, how do the how do we edit the show together? So what are some of the tools of the trade for a video outreach person? You know, what what cameras have you found that you like, microphones, editing, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I'm gonna start off and then probably throw it over to Ryan. Um but I would say don't let gear be a limitation to your film outreach. 
Um, I mean, literally your iPhones nowadays have a 4K camera on it. You can do some pretty cool stuff just within your iPhone, you know? Um, that, that was my plug. And here's, here's Ryan with a better answer about gear. <laughs> you know, I had to go through this exercise um, because I just finished writing a book um, about this. And uh, so I had to come, come up with some sort of answer because unfortunately for me, I've learned mostly using a specific type of camera called a digital, uh, a, a digital single lens reflex, um, DSLR. But there are a lot of cameras out there for us to use, and it just depends on the application. Um, I would say, like, you could use these GoPro sport cameras for a lot of things, but interviews is not a good application. But honestly, if you're doing field work, and let's say you have a weather balloon, throw one of those on. So it really depends on the application. I would say that, you know, you have your smartphone, you have your sport phone, uh, sport cameras, you have camcorders. And I see camcorders as these... um, do-it-all cameras because they simplify a lot. They try to take the complexity out of filming. And uh, so camcorders are jack-of-all-trades, and then you have these DSLRs that have huge image sensors, so the quality of the shots are great, and you can use these lenses to really enhance the character of your shots. So it takes a while to navigate, let's say, up to the more complex cameras like a DSLR, but... um, yeah, do what you can with what you have. And then if you're going to make a purchase, what are you really wanting to use your camera for? If it's interviews, um, I personally like the DSLR. All right. Yeah. So that, uh, that definitely makes sense. I know there's a lot of YouTube channels where there are GoPros that they just strap to, <laughs> to all kinds of stuff. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, so that's a great idea of if you're doing field work, just strap a GoPro to whatever you're using and, Uh, see what comes out the other end obviously doing a podcast one of the things we care a lot about is audio quality and i know in videos having poor audio can be a really big problem especially if you're talking to somebody that's out in the field uh any tips for folks on that yeah there's a there's a few things and like you said um audio can be a big problem and people actually tend to be forgiving of poor video but not so much poor audio (laughs) because if you can't listen to it easily people just kind of tune out um so, I mean, a big thing when you're out in the field and you, you need to collect audio, you're not just recording video. Um, I mean, definitely just be cognizant of the wind. You know, if you're in a really windy area, figure out a way that you can block your microphone either with a hand or a wind block or stand behind a tree. That sometimes works wonders. Um, if you're doing specific interviews, investing in some of the cheap lapel mics that you can clip right onto their Clothes are, are great because then you can get um, an audio recorder really close to where the sound is coming from, their mouth. That was a really technical way to say you can get audio close to their mouth. Um, <laughs> I like that shotgun mics. Sounds coming from their mouth, yeah. you know, just in case. Well, I, was, I was in the middle of talking about that. I was like, oh, my God, this is such a dumb way to explain this. But I am committed. <laughs> go, Dan, go. Go, go. Um, so I'm going to let Ryan take over for a second. Uh, don't worry. We'll, we'll slow it down and then make you relive it again. Just, <laughs> just Perfect. to point it out, okay? Yeah, Dan, tell us a little bit about those lapel microphones. That you can get close to the mouth? Where the source is coming from? Wait, what? Close to the mouth? Well, only a seismologist would talk about things in terms of source-receiver pairs. Just going to point that out. Thank you, John. I'm glad you understand. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, 
Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add or encourage people about or anything else that you'd like to share? I love these open-ended questions because there's so much we could talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's really cool that you invited us on on the the show talking about science because one thing that I I personally think about is that science – we do science because we're curious beings. But as soon as we start reading science or we're trying to learn science, is that really science – or is that knowledge? I think of science as this exploration, really curiosity-based, where we do experimentation. But as soon as we're taking a science class, without the labs, are we really learning science? And so I would say that we're gaining knowledge that's technical a lot of, way, a lot of times. But to actually get people into the process of beca- uh, learning the scientific method doing the things that we've all been trained to do is not that easy. And I think that that's one of the things that Dan and I try to do with, you know, he brought up earlier about the why. Um, If we can infuse people's lives with questions, that's what science is. It's not always the knowledge. And I think that gets really confused often. Um, So when I look at the bigger problems of our planet, and let's say I studied climate change, which is just one issue that's in the media, um, I think that as soon as we just learn information and think we have to make wise decisions around that, that that removes us from the scientific questions. So I think that when I when I see what Dan and I are trying to do, where we're trying to raise awareness around science, not just knowledge, yeah, we want to fire up curiosity. And I, I thought that was just kind of a good ending point in my mind. That was like, yes, what else did I have? And I think we're trying to inspire curiosity, um, and that's what outreach is. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Yeah, is, that a, is that a mic drop? <laughs> yeah. I walk it out. <laughs> so where can folks find you on the internet if they want to ask you questions or check out some of the work you've done or have you helped them make awesome outreach videos? Yeah, the easiest place is on YouTube. Um, so if you just search for Break and Sci, so B-R-E-A-K-N-S. CI on YouTube. You'll be able to find our YouTube channel. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, so you can reach us on either of those. Um, and if you want to use email, we even have an email account, uh, which is just breakingsci at gmail.com. Yeah, that's the, that's our joint projects. Um, and yeah, we'd love any sort of feedback that people would have. Uh, that's one of our projects. We, we're also working on uh, the kids' show called Adventures in Science. And that doesn't have a website yet, but we're hoping that our show will be broadcast around March, April. Um, we're in the editing studio right now trying to get that together and banging our head against the wall a couple times about storytelling. But, um, yeah, keep your eyes out for adventures in science as well. Great. We will link all of that down in the show notes. And then as we get updates from you all, we'll make sure to retweet those out. So make sure you follow them and follow our account as well. Uh, but without further ado, I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Fun Paper Friday. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, guys, you picked this, so I will, I will let you introduce this really interesting Fun Paper. We did. So this may be a little different than some of the other Fun Papers you cover. Um, 
because this is more of a, I don't know, a news story for science with a video, with a really awesome video that if you have time, you should totally watch. Um, But anyways, for those of you who are not geoscientists or members of the American Geophysical Union, um, American Geophysical Union, or AGU, is having their big fall meeting right now down in New Orleans. And one of the keynote speakers was actually Dan Rather, and he gave a fantastic talk about science and science communication and engaging with the public and how we can do this um, in in effective ways in an environment where there seems to be a lot against us. You know, we hear a lot, we hear the phrase, you know, fake news quite a lot nowadays. Um, We hear a lot of people arguing against, you know, excuse me, verifiable facts. Like we have the flat earthers or we have climate change deniers. So how do we, you know, get in touch with the general public in science in these fun and engaging ways that, you know, educate them and kind of, further society along. So it's uh, it, the article we found was in EOS, Dan Rather's vision for scientists in an era of fake news. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can find the video for this on, uh, on the uh, AGU, American Geophysical Union, um, Facebook page. It's also linked at the bottom of the article. Oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, that's easy, too. Which I actually didn't know until about an hour ago, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Dan Rather's 86 years old? He does not look it at all, does he? No. No. <laughs> no, not at all. And he gets up there, too, in the middle, like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, it's an old man. You might have some problems. Like, dude, you are on fire. Like, yes! Dan Rather, do not apologize. <laughs> no kidding. I love yeah. it. Um, I thought it was really cool what we just talked about earlier to bring it back in. Um, I think that when we were talking about you guys get inspiration from seeing scientists that are excited about their work, but sort of some of what Dan Rather here is saying is that you know scientists actually need to be better at getting excited about their work. And so I thought that was an interesting thing to say. You know, the onus isn't just on journalists trying to tell their stories, but that, you know, scientists need to relay their passion because that's sort of a really important part of science. And why would you expect anyone to get excited about it if you can't even communicate it? And I mean, this is a problem we have that's systemic throughout all of, you know, most university science departments is that it's hard to get communication down right. Mm hmm. He brought up this example about um, how people are naturally inclined to be interested in science, and he brought up the eclipse that happened this summer. Um, and he was saying that people were really drawn to it. And I think that there are these really charismatic sciences out there, um, black holes, that people are, tend to watch or learn about. Um, but then there are those things where people scientists have to reach into their past or into their belly of what gets them up in the morning. When they see a graph, why are they excited? And translating that, and I think that that was his call um, to say, what is it about your science that grabs you? And then infuse our lives with that same interest, uh, if you can. Um, But maybe I'm just projecting. Well, so how, how do you make your science a, uh, to borrow a phrase that we like on this show, a charismatic mega science? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> what? Yeah. Done. 
charismatic so, uh, mega science. <laughs> well, charismatic megafauna, and then we just adapt that a little bit. So, because uh, uh, that's what science I, does. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like one thing that somebody asked. Uh, how I, I'm afraid of talking to the media because I'm afraid of being misrepresented, mm-hmm. and I like that his response. His initial response was "Fear not," and that was it. And then <laughs> he said, uh, "And this is a, a quote from the article." This is not worthy of some of the best minds in the country to talk about risk and say, I'm afraid to do something. No, the best of science is not afraid to do anything. And I I just thought that was a really great quote. I did, too. And it was kind of like, put on your big girl panties and step up, man. Like, I love that. Dan Rather's way of saying it. That was so spectacular. (laughs) That was a charismatic mega quote. It was. I mean, I, I like really it. wish he would have just said, put on your big girl panties, but you know, yeah, I mean, did it's, in a... <laughs> it's a really cool, I think it's a really cool call to action. And it's, there's a lot of things that I think have to happen for science communication to be more prolific throughout the, the field, you know, because um, unfortunately there are worries about, oh, if I say this and it gets mis- misrepresented, what's going to happen? Oh, but, you know, my tenure track package doesn't really need this science communication. I just need to focus on that. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's a complex issue. There's a lot that is going into, you know, somebody being able to step up and say, hey, you know what? This is my science. I love it. It's freaking awesome. You just check it out, you know? Yeah, so one thing that I thought was interesting, and I don't know if he said this so directly, but I feel like you all and this article together are going to have some great insight on – I feel like scientists should be learning more about how to tell a story from places like the news, how to pull out the essential and interesting pieces and stitch a story arc together that is not an hour-long PowerPoint-backed lecture, right? You know, that's a really interesting comment because he was kind of saying fear not about us or let's say scientists stepping into doing the science that they feel is – has integrity and then he would say that the media could then do the interpretation but that's saying that the media then understands the science this kind of turns it around and says that okay scientists understand the media as well and storytelling um and i like that it's kind of inversely proportional oh i i like that too so much because that's sort of you know the premise of a lot of what i do is trying to say that science is just a story you know it's just we use this language of math and these other maybe more obscure to the general public ways of storytelling. And that's how, that's exactly how you do it. I love that part of this, um, of Dan Rather's speech. That, that's effectively what I was going to say. So I agree oh. with Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome for that setup. <laughs> but no, I mean, there's some like cool activities. I remember I was at a, um, uh, the WISE, Women in STEM and Engineering here in, in, at CU, I went to one of their conferences and one of their activities was explain your research in four words or less. And you're just like, well, shoot. Maybe, maybe it was only four, four letter words or less. There it was four letter words. I was going to say after (laughs) one, (laughs) I know you're going through like, I can't even use earth. That's five letters. (laughs) Oh man, that's awesome. Dirt. Yeah. So, (laughs) <laughs> kind of to your point, Shannon, I think we are, as scientists, we already are storytellers. 
we just have to back out and not use jargon and not yes. use overly scientific phrases. I mean, there's there's a place for that, right? And if I'm talking to, if I'm standing at my poster at a conference talking to like a preeminent scientist in my field, I'm going to explain my work very differently than if I'm talking to somebody from the general public, you know? Right. So I think there's understanding a place and time when you use jargon, when you use um, fancy terminology and whatnot, and a place and time to be totally colloquial. I love explaining science with like, heck yes, and oh, that's so weird, dude. Like people, <laughs> I don't know, people relate to that, I think. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. I think that you should not, or I, I don't know, you shouldn't get scientific accolades unless you can do both. I feel, I feel that strongly about the importance of being able to communicate your science. Because, I mean, yeah, okay, so you get a whole bunch of journal articles and all this, but if you can't make the world care about it, then who cares for real? You know, that brings up a thought that I've had in my head, and I was kind of wondering what people around here were thinking about it. People around here meaning you on the other <laughs> side of the, the planet. Um, but... If you think about science, and let's say you're applying for an NSF grant or NASA, what percentage of that grant actually goes to communicating that science in an effective way to users? And you know, you could say that a user is a peer, but also who's paying for your grant? So if you were to think of about this as a business proposition, and your boss was to give you money, you have to. There's a certain degree of responsibility for you to pitch your stuff or make it, your research clear to that person. Now, if the public or taxpayers pay for NSF grants, the onus is on us to bring this to our bosses, which are our people. Otherwise, they're going to lose interest in our work and disconnection. So I, I feel like part of this conversation has to be it's really important for the, the sustainability of our sciences, of our interests, to also push this out there. Not just because people deserve to know. We deserve to push our science further by marketing it. I love this. Did this I? is the one part where I think that, you know, the whole corporate America, you know, has it right. And this is something that we should take from it. I feel so strongly about that exactly like you should be able to not only be able to but you should tell people about this right i think john and mm -hmm. i talk about this a lot actually um and both on the show and off we were just talking about this the other day that people are saying okay i'll be a guest on your show so i can check off that box that says i did outreach and that's that's not right <laughs> You know, that's that's not what it should be. You owe, yeah, you owe your shareholders more than that. I was nodding my head. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about explaining it without jargon, it mm -hmm. reminded me of the Upgoer 5 session at AGU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, which, for those not familiar, Upgoer 5 is a XKCD comic where the Saturn V rocket is broken down and labeled using only the 1,000 most common words. Yep. And so th they would challenge people to do this with their research. And so, for example, the rocket engines on the Saturn V would say, lots of fire comes out of here. This should point towards the ground if you want to go to space. Yeah. <laughs> so I, maybe that's a good exercise for folks to do is try using the 1,000 most common words and then maybe expand a little bit but see how far away from that jargon you can get. It's harder than you'd think. It's really hard. And there's actually a book called The Thing Explainer written by 
the XKCD guy, and it's super fun. I actually have it. This is so nerdy. I have it by my bedside table. <laughs> it's, it's so cool. It is so cool. I have my do. dinosaurs matter behind beside yeah. my bedside table. <laughs> oh, I don't have anything good. That's okay. <laughs> You're reading. No, see, I have my iPad. Uh. That's kind of where I was going. I, I uh, have my charger for my computer. Oh, it's uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. You can say it. It's all right. <laughs> We're all friends here. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Green Chest. 48 there hertz you on your screen. Oh, oh. damn it, you need John. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, guys, it's been a lot of fun having you on here. <laughs> And I really look forward to checking out your your series when it comes out shortly after the start of 2018. And we'll make sure to let folks know about that. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And Shannon, if folks want to get a hold of us to send us their uh, thing explainer versions of their <laughs> research or fun papers they'd like to discuss or any other feedback, how can they do that? You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And then always come and spend some of your work day with us in the Slack channel, the Software Underground. We're on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 